Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where each week we have a look back at the news and guests from Luxembourg or more internationally bring us their wisdom on a whole range of topics. I hope you've had a wonderful week wherever you're listening from. And the highlight of my week was uh, my children going back to school and getting back into the routine of school life. I think it is a rather late start here in Luxembourg for children to go back to school. Anyhow, we're all back onto the swing of that routine. So without further ado, my guests today, they're from all over the place. But as usual, we have Sasha Kyo, the newsreader from The Samstein Show, with a reflection on the week's news. Also with me, Pascal Stickles, Head of Education at the Philharmonie. Dr. Claudia Hitai, who is going to talk about the Carbon Nerd Project to educate Luxembourgish youth and the general public about climate change, our carbon footprint and decarbonisation paths. And finally, last but not least, Francine Kaiser and Anushka Prakash, who are going to talk about their designs, which will be showcased at Luxembourg Fashion Week. So welcome to you all. Hello, Lisa. It's great to have you always on my show. And Sasha, turning to you first, as always. Uh, we are going to have a hint of the female, I think, in our reflection of the news this week. Yes, I thought it, it's been quite a heavy news week. There's obviously massive news coming out of Ukraine and Russian referendums and UN General Assembly and, of course, uh, the funeral of the Queen on Monday. So I thought let's let's concentrate on women. So starting off with um, the Italian elections yes. on Sunday, uh, the favourite uh, person to win the elections is a woman called Georgia Meloni. Yes, uh, which actually I think a lot of people might have heard of by now. She's a forty-five-year-old uh, woman, single woman, and mother, but she's selling herself as a. As a Unity, Christian mother, Christian mother, yeah, yes, exactly. That line. And people are terribly worried because she she does come from this Brothers of Italy party, which is rooted in Italian fascism, and she she's trying to soften the tone a bit. I think rather similar in in ways of Marine Le Pen, mm -hmm. similar. Um, but people are really worried about issues like immigration, abortion. Um, gay marriage, all these sort of uh, civil rights uh, that are very much enshrined in Italian society. And yet it looks like um, the a lot of people are going to vote for her on Sunday. Yeah, and we had an echo of that with the Swedish elections. We did. That sentimentality, perhaps. It seems to, as it seems, immigration is the big, the big issue. And as you know, with it Italian politics, I mean, there have been so many elections. Uh, they've just... You know, they they have they're trying everything. They've it's gone quite from Berlusconi, up. yes, exactly, <laughs> to use a, a technocrat like Mario Draghi, and uh, it looks like now we will have the first female prime minister and far right female prime minister in Italy, um, in a in a right wing alliance with Berlusconi and Matteo Salvini. So uh, a lot of people are very concerned about Italian politics at the moment. Yeah, for, for different reasons to how they usually were <laughs> concerned about Italian politics. Other female news-led stories, of course, uh, brings up the picture in Iran at the moment. Well, exactly. That's that's another very interesting development. Um, so the, it, it started the protest. There have been a lot of protests, and they were started because a, a woman was uh, arrested by the Iranian morality police, and she died in custody um, for not 
I mean, she was arrested for not correctly wearing headscarf, which is now mandatory in Iran. And it wasn't before. You know, we think of Iran as always being so conservative, but it is becoming increasingly hardline and conservative. And so far, the protests are mainly women and 17 women have died. And another interesting um, sidebar, I think, is that the Iranian president, Raisi, is currently in New York at the UN General Assembly and has been making very strong statements against the West. Um, but he was supposed to be interviewed by CNN's uh, Christine Amanpour. That's right. And she obviously grew up in, in Persia, speaks Farsi and has interviewed every Iranian president so far. Uh, but she refused to wear a headscarf because the interview is not in Iran. It, it is in New York. And uh, they it was cancelled. Mm-hmm. So that's think- a massive statement from a journalist of her calibre. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting side story to to the the mm-hmm. fate of of women in Iran and and society in Iran in general. But huge protests from women and men because I think a lot of what I've heard in the news a lot of men realize this could be their sister, it could be their daughter. Absolutely. It could be a family member, a friend for instance, so they understand how close this story is and and how awful it is as well. More female news <laughs> in fact as we move towards Spain. Yes, uh, 15 uh, female footballers have uh, resigned and they're the top women's footballers and they've resigned uh, because they feel that they have not been treated well by the coach and that their things like injuries, changing rooms, all any issues have not been uh, represented in women's football. So yes, mass resignation, which apparently is a is a first in men's and women's football, not just in Spain, but worldwide, that basically more than a team have have just resigned en masse. Yeah, so something hopefully will be done about this. <laughs> We're going to keep with the sport element here because I don't think we can pass over the fact that Federer will play his last match today. We're recording on Friday, of course. So tell us about Federer, who everybody loves Federer. I think everybody loves Federer, exactly. So he, he hasn't actually played for a long time. He's been injured and he is uh, retiring. He's 41, which is a perfectly uh, reasonable age to retire. Wouldn't it be lovely? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, though, that when you retire as a, as a tennis player, you, you're physic- physically exhausted and need to have a lot of operations. But uh, <laughs> but it, it is kind of sad. But it's, he's going out with a bang, I think, because they're going to play. A, he's going to play a doubles match with his old rival Rafael Nadal tonight in London, and uh, so I think it's it's a kind of match that will be more for fun and show. Yeah, they might put on some of their yeah yeah under leg or over the whichever bit of their body they can. <laughs> Tennis balls from probably every part of the body, upside down, backwards. Yes, exactly. And I think it's very much a, a, a new dawn in, in tennis anyway. There are very much new personalities coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think this sort of, uh, I mean, Djokovic also is a very cool personality, isn't he? He kind of keeps it all very calm. But more and more, I think tennis, uh, the men's, there's there's a lot of personality like Kyrgios, you know, uh, explosive personalities coming out. And I think someone like Federer, People feel a bit sad because he seems like a sort of gentleman of tennis. Who's yeah, he he looks like a gentleman. He's always wearing suits. You can't see him ever. I've never seen him unruffled. No. <laughs> I can't imagine his hair being unruffled. No, 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 not at all. So, yes, that, 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 that'll be a, 
a fun a fun match. Tonight. I think there's a lot of modeling opportunities in the future for Federer with various watches as they always they always pose with their watches or various other bits of body parts showing yes, off. You don't have to feel sorry for people like that, do you? Once they retire, that's not like um, their life will be fine. I hope. Fine. I hope. And he deserves it. He really, really has been a tennis superstar. Well, I know that you're off on your own journey very soon. You have to take your son off to Durham University. So we wish him well. We wish him well with oh, his very first you, year at university. We wish you a wonderful drive and overnight ferry. How exciting. Well, I'm kind of making it in as if it was into a cruise, which I think I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's a wonderful idea and so very carbon efficient as well to be uh, taking the ferry, not flying. That's obviously why I chose that, that mode of transport. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Sasha, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. See you soon. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, my next guest, as alluded to in the introduction, Pascal Stiklis, is Head of Education at the Philharmonie. And so music education, really from the get-go, has been a pillar of everything that the Philharmonie has done. It's been part of its makeup. It offers a huge programme which focuses on young audiences. So, Pascal, you are the very best person to tell us more about the Philharmonie and how it views education for young people. Yes, so thanks for having me. I'm very glad to be here. So the Philharmonie's education program has been an essential part of Philharmonie's program from the very beginning, so since the inauguration of the Philharmonie in 2005-06. So and in, it's an essential part of the planning. Why? Because we think that music is a universal language which is um, suitable, exciting and enjoyable for everyone from birth on, onwards over the lifespan. And um, therefore, we have set up a very huge education program, one of the biggest in Europe, um, to um, get children and youngsters involved in music. And you have it really segmented into lots of different age groups. Walk us through the different segments that you have formed. Yes. So in general, there are three very big pillars. One is the concert performance um, area for young audiences. The second is the very big school program, um, not only um, at the Philharmonie, but also in schools. And the third is the creative and workshop uh, program. So the concert uh, performances are really tailor-made for kids. So it speaks about topics which are relevant for the kids. It's uh, visually, it's very attractive. It's interactive. Um, it's very joyful. And we have structured the program um, according to age groups and language profiles. So there are different cycles for babies, toddlers, under five, four to eight, three to five, six to 106, nine to 12. So actually everyone can, can get an appropriate uh, experience at the Philharmonie. And we also offer projects in different languages. So we present in Luxembourgish, in French, uh, in German, but also, of course, without spoken language because music can speak for itself. Well, there's, there's so much there. I mean, Luxembourg perhaps is one of the best countries in Europe to showcase music through the different languages and, of course, music, the language of itself. And when people think of a house like the Philharmonie, they think, oh, my goodness, you can't bring a child there because they have to be quiet. But you're actually really encouraging from youth to be able to, to enjoy music in all sorts of ways as they grow and grow with the music. Exactly. So, um, first of all, I absolutely agree that Luxembourg is the perfect 
location to get involved in music because we present productions from all over Europe and the world. But also there's a very well developed cultural scene in Luxembourg with great artists, uh, with great local artists. And we present projects from France or from, from UK, from Germany. So you can really discover uh, the whole spectrum of uh, great music education um, projects. And you actually use local artists a lot in the Philharmonie too for the work that you offer. Absolutely, because they are great, because they are able to present in Luxembourg, which is important because it, it very much relates to the identity of the country. But our intention is also to bring them in contact or in dialogue with international artists. So very often they collaborate with major concert halls in Hamburg, in Vienna, and we set up exciting projects together with international but also local artists. And when people think about the Philharmonie, the first thing people might think about is classical music, but that is not mm. actually the case at all. You have an extremely varied programme and an awful lot of jazz offerings, world music as well. So talk us through the programme beyond just the programme for youth. Yes, so uh, the idea is to, we are a major concert hall in Luxembourg, and the, the idea is not to be very narrow in terms of what we are offering. What we offer is quality music, but it can be uh, the the full range from baroque music to new music, from classical music to romantic music, from chamber music to orchestral music, but also um, the sound world of the world. So world music, jazz um, projects like this. So and it's all the time it will be quality music, but not all the time it will be classical music. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good tagline there. Now, um, I know looking around the room, many of us here have children of various ages, all of whom I'm sure are invited to the Philharmonie for various uh, things on offer there. But uh, when it comes to the teenage bracket and beyond, they move into the world of earphones and pop music. Do you think that the world of classical music dies out at that age or how do you keep that age group activated and wanting to go to a place like the Philharmonie and keeping it part of their adult lives. Mm -hmm. So, um, first of all, again, I think music is a universal tool and it's it's really interesting for everyone. Um, the age group uh, 14 to 18 might be more challenging when it comes to classical music, but our approach is that we would like um, to offer youngsters the possibility to, to get involved on stage, to be part of an artistic project on stage to claim the stage for them and then to reach out to their peers on stage. So and therefore we set up participatory projects in which uh, the youngsters have a key, key role to play and then very often it works well. So for instance we have done a dance and percussion project uh, with the title We All Blossom in Different Colors. It was about identity, it was about the inner own strength and that, that worked really well. So and also in schools we are offering um, tailor-made projects for youngsters. We will be having the Jazz at Lincoln Center present the world-famous Jazz at Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra presenting for youngsters. Um, so there are many things you you can do, but it it's a challenging age group, of course. Well, actually, you mentioned a very important word there, which is outreach, because we're talking about a lot of people going to the Philharmonie and how open the Philharmonie is to everybody, all age groups. But in fact, some people don't even register it for whatever reason, for their backgrounds, their cultural, family dynamics. So you have this outreach programme as well, which goes to the schools to meet the students there from all backgrounds. Yes. So we want to place music at the very heart of school life to make um, school life richer, to support and inspire the teachers in school with our programmes. 
Um, so and therefore, um, the, uh, we have an existing school program and we are regularly and every day present in school classes with performance projects, uh, with Q&A interview projects, with artists, with creative workshops, with singing projects and so on. And, uh, and it's exciting and fulfilling to do this work um, because obviously it serves as a tool for democratization of culture in schools. Mm -hmm, which is absolutely, again, one of the pillars of the Philharmonie and, and what you want to give. Um, when it comes to some of the interdisciplinary productions that you put on, because the way in which music is performed can also be visual. Talk us through some of those programs. I think you've got one with <coughs> butterflies, for instance. Exactly. Um, so the general idea is um, to offer projects to kids which are Uh, very strong in terms of communication, in terms of exchange in between the artist and the young audiences, and which are visually exciting. So therefore, music will always be placed at the center of our productions, but um, we do um, collaborations or interdisciplinary projects combining circus, dance, ballet, theater, acrobatics, and so on, to to create... Uh, what I would like to call the the new concert format of the 21st century for young audiences. And then um, it's it's simply exciting to see those productions. Yeah, to just hit all of the senses. And speaking to your colleague Tiffany, actually, we were talking about the price of going to the Philharmonie and she spoke to me about the Phil 27, uh, which actually makes it cheaper than a cinema ticket, in fact, to go to the Philharmonie, for instance. I think it's 10 euros uh, for the Phil 27. So under 27-year-olds can uh, get a 10-euro ticket. Yes, exactly. So um, the, the, the idea is, of course, To, to have a low barrier to enable everyone um, to, to come to our projects and to come to our concert performance. And uh, obviously the very young adults um, are interested in, in uh, high quality projects, but uh, for a low price. And I think it's, it's fair enough to offer to this specific age group uh, more interesting pricing conditions. And this weekend, you've got a percussion extravaganza. Yes, so thank you. I'm thrilled to speak about this project because not only we are presenting 170 age-appropriate performances per season for young people, but there's a major innovation um, in the education programming of the Philharmonie. And we call this themed weekends or thematic weekends. And so we have, we have chosen three flagship moments over the season to deal with some um, um, very relevant topics for kids. So the first is, as you mentioned, the percussion extravaganza. The second will be in December, uh, dealing with the topic of Christmas and winter. And the last one will be about the theme of nature and ecological awareness. So this weekend, we present the so-called percussion extravaganza, a themed weekend um, built around the, th the sound world of percussion and percussion instruments. And I would like to invite everyone at home um, to go through our programming because there's still tickets available for many exciting projects. So we do performances with percussion, we do workshops, we have a great ex exhibition uh, in the Grand Foyer of the Philharmonie. There will be creative activities for children zero to five in the Grand Foyer. So many things going on. Um, so go to our homepage www.philharmonie.lu 
and you can check out what's what's happening. When it comes to the world of percussion, there are so many instruments that it, it's just, I mean, it, it feels like a paradise for a child, particularly young children, where they like to hit things and they yeah. can, they can get an instant sound. It's not like trying to play the trombone. Um, exactly. So it's very diverse and it's very rich. So f uh, during the percussion extravaganza, we will present all sorts of uh, percussion instruments. For instance, we are doing a music theater project around a very, uh, very nice tiger. Um, and this will become, there will be storytelling combined with percussion sounds from the marimba. But we also have um, in the percussion show, uh, Grooving Kids, we will also present the drum set. Um, so there are many, many things. There are silent sounds, there are uh, very dynamic sounds. And therefore, we've also chosen the theme of percussion for the, this weekend because it's so rich and yeah. so diverse. Yeah, well, we wish you luck with that. And uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will hopefully get along to the Philharmonie this weekend. Uh, Pascal, thank you so much for your time and enriching our lives this morning. You mentioned a very important word there, very important for the landscape of radio and podcasting and television even, which is silence. Silence actually plays um, perhaps uh, a quiet but very important role. <laughs> yeah, quiet. <laughs> uh, in, in, you know, when it comes to music, the, the, the pauses between the sounds is just as important sometimes as the notes. Absolutely. You actually need silence to before you start the music. And this also explains why um, people, but also young people are so attracted uh, by the Philharmonie's programming, because in the, the spaces, so the chamber music or the Grand Auditorium, those are spaces of music, of course, but also of silence. Mm -hmm. And you, you can leave all the distractions Uh, in the outdoor world. Especially if you put your phone on silent. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal, thank you ever so much. Now, coming after the break, keeping on the nature theme, Claudia is going to tell us all about the Carbon Nerd Project. The Lisa Burke Show. Welcome back. The Lisa Burke Show. Welcome back. Now, Dr. Claudia Hitai is a research and technology associate in the Environmental Sustainability and Circularity Unit of the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, LIST. She joined LIST in 2019 after working as a research economist at the Economic Research Service of the US Department of Agriculture for six years. At LIST, Claudia is leading research on sustainable finance and managing LIST's Carbon Nerd Project to educate Luxembourgish youth and the general public about climate change, our carbon footprint and decarbonisation paths. She is also the host of the Net Zero Future series on the podcast Lux Unplugged. A little bit about Claudia's incredible background. She holds a BA in Economics and Mathematics and a BA in Biology from Yale University, an MPhil in Environmental Policy from the University of Cambridge and a PhD in Agricultural and Resource Economics from the University of Maryland. And you look so young to have done all of that and worked as well and have three children. Claudia, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> Now we're going to start right away by talking about your initiative. So talk to us about Carbon Nerd. What is it? Where did the idea come from? Carbon Nerd is really my favourite project. So we found that many people, they may know about climate change, but they really don't know anything about our carbon footprint. And don't have a real idea of what we should be doing to decarbonize. So what's our role? What's government's role when it comes to decarbonization? So this is really what we set out to 
teach people and we thought we'd start in schools and of course general public so I'm really glad to be here and tell people about this project. So it's really echoing what Pascal said about hitting the youth because they are building the future and to keep it as part of their life and their mentality. So what does it do? How are you going into schools? What are you presenting to the young people? So uh, together with two colleagues of mine at LIST, Elori Igos and Thomas Gibon, we collected all the information we thought was important and put it into a really nice brochure. With uh, We had a great designer work with us. And then we started going to school. So I started emailing lots of teachers. Um, there was great response. And I have to say, I always like being in the classroom, you know, feeling that energy from the students. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, they they definitely know a lot. They know a lot more than I did at that age. And yeah, diving into the topic. And um, I have to say that it does get depressing and it does get sad, but it also overall, I am positive and I, I kind of get the positive energy from the kids as well. What's the depressing part? Oh, the depressing part, I mean... You have to realize that when you go into a school, um, you know, climate change and where we are right now, it's it's our fault. You know, it's the adult's fault. And so there's this sort of feeling of, um, when it comes to teenagers, like, why are you telling us this? You know, we everyone got excited with Greta Thunberg. You know, the kids need to do this. The teenagers need to do this. But this is really not their role right now. You know, they're supposed to be learning in school. They're supposed to be playing sports, playing music, going to the Philharmonie. <laughs> so this is what their life should be about right now. But a lot of the students are taking up the mantle, you know, joining Youth for Climate Luxembourg, uh, being activists. But it definitely means missing out on other opportunities. Mm-hmm. So this is why, you know, you present to them the future of what will happen. You know, it does not look like we can uh, meet the 1.5 degree uh, warming scenario. And, you know, when you tell them about all the consequences of climate change it definitely gets depressing so i try to counter that and you know hopefully when you feel like everyone is doing something everyone knows what their role is then you feel a lot more positive about the future well people feel they need to know what they can do to affect a change otherwise it's terribly depressing because we feel like we're in this situation where we don't really know what we can do or what we can actually make sure we do that that is quite simple in our life not too difficult so talk us through that because we all know about planes for example we shouldn't fly so much but uh, driving is another one sometimes people don't always have those options so give us some real examples of what we could do okay so what I always tell people what's really what I think is sort of has been easy for me to change is these everyday decisions when it comes to transportation like you mentioned I know there are days when you feel like you need to take the car because you need to be someone time. But to just question that and, you know, not always be in the same routine because it is really nice. I mean, Luxembourg made public transportation free. It's easy. You get to read. It's it's a really nice experience. Same for biking. I know there's lots of people. I enjoy biking to work. Um, and I know people, I have friends who say they would want to, but it feels dangerous. But in any case, so th- this is another thing I say. Same for short distances to go uh, shopping, take the bike. And then the other place where you can really make kind of personal choices that will have a big impact on uh, mitigating climate change is when it comes to food. So, you know, I mean, I'm not saying everyone should become a vegan, not at all. Um, actually, when I when we came up with our decarbonization scenario, we said that the future would be more of a flexitarian diet. So roughly six days a week, vegetarian, one day a week, uh, you know, with meat. 
So this is, I think, what the future will be. So every day when you make a choice, what should I eat today? Why don't you ask yourself, well, maybe it could be vegetarian today, or maybe it could be chicken rather than beef. So these are kind of things that are in our immediate control. Other other things, you definitely need the government to you know, help. You need the government to put the safe bicycle paths. You need the government to, you know, expand bus routes or have them be more frequent. So it's kind of, we definitely can't have the stance where we think government needs to do everything or think that it's only on us, but it really is both of us. Mm -hmm. The combination of both. Mm -hmm. So talk us through then what the average carbon footprint of the average person in Luxembourg looks like. So we are at 13 tons of CO2 equivalent per person per year. And this is really quite high. Um, there's two reasons it's it's very high. On the one hand, it's because on average, Luxembourg, a Luxembourgish person is quite rich if you compare it to others in Europe and certainly others in the rest of the world. And this means that we consume more. So we will be more likely to live in a household that will have two cars instead of one, uh, that we will fly more often, that we will just buy more clothes, these kind of things. So all of these actions that we do, they have an impact on the climate. And then the other reason that the Luxembourgish carbon footprint is so high is that uh, we do rely on the car quite often, right? So I know it's difficult getting around with public transportation or with bike, uh, but this is what we need to do. And I hope that, you know, the, the government will also manage to make this transition happen. Well, there was a recent news story saying that uh, per head of population in Luxembourg, um, there is a high, if not the highest in Europe, luxury car ownership. Uh, and we see that on the streets Absolutely. and in the car parks yeah. and outside the houses. Um, perhaps you can also push forward a more active uh, green car regime or, or no car regime with with your projects. Exactly. Yeah. And we often get the, the question, you know, because there's a lot of reporting on electric vehicles, you know, is this a good idea? What about batteries, etc.? But when we looked at electric vehicles and, you know, put in the electricity, the Luxembourgish electricity mix, it's already a good idea right now. So it's about half of the life cycle uh, greenhouse gas emissions for an electric vehicle compared to gasoline powered vehicle. So mm -hmm. if you're thinking about getting one, uh, go for it. Yeah. Well, the other part of that, which is in the news all of the time at the moment in this year is um, fossil fuels and gas or mazout as we have in this country as well. Yes. So how to heat our homes. That is a big, big, actually after transportation, uh, housing is the second biggest component of our carbon footprint. And I think this is something we, we often neglect. So, you know, it's not something that we can change immediately, although you can set your thermostat lower. So I definitely recommend that. Um, I'm currently heating my home to 19 degrees. I think it's fine. <laughs> I think uh, I, I may even go lower this winter because we all know that energy prices are going up. And so we have basically a twofold, a double moral obligation to consume uh, less fossil fuels, consume less gas, consume less oil. I mean, one is, of course, to support Ukraine and the other one is for climate change. So I really hope that people, you know, set their thermostat lower and also take advantage of all of the wonderful incentives that we have. Uh, if you go to climatagence.lu, uh, they have so many incentives for, you know, switching away from gas and oil to heat pumps, for example, or putting uh, solar panels on your roof that um, I encourage everyone to take advantage of those. It's great that we have those uh, facilities and people to speak to here in Luxembourg. So on that theme then, how can Luxembourg build a plan towards net zero? 
So this is, for me, it was the most exciting part of my research because usually, you know, you're sort of thinking of only one sector. So maybe the agriculture sector or maybe the the mobility sector, transport sector, and you think you're already doing enough. But if you then take the big picture view and say, okay, we're at 13 tons of CO2 right now, we need to get to 1.5 tons. So that's a 90% reduction. That always comes as a, as a shock when I say this in schools. Where did those figures come from? Uh, so the 1.5 degree is the target that's aligned with the Paris Agreement uh, target of keeping global warming well below two degrees. So this 90% reduction will only happen if we kind of do every action that we can think of times three by every actor in every sector. And so once you see the decarbonization path, you know, we need to own fewer cars, we need to do more car sharing, we need to switch to public transportation, biking, walking, the housing as well. So shifting away from fossil fuels, um, reducing the space that we have per person. So we'll be living in kind of more in smaller housing, not worse, you know, mm-hmm. has more shared space. I think it will be a really different kind of living, more exciting. Um, for food, like I said, this flexitarian diet, reducing food waste, reducing consumption. So consuming fewer clothes, consuming more high quality clothes. I think the next guest can talk about that. Um, you know, electronics and so on. And then when we implement all of these actions, some of which will be by us individuals, some will be implemented by government, industry, then we can make this happen, but really only then. And this is the kind of information that everyone needs because we, we need to know from a government, well, you know, this is what you need to do. And then I think we all feel empowered and we realize that everyone else will be doing this as well. Do you think people care enough to make these changes or do you think policy should be put in place to make sure it's actioned upon? I, we, we need both. So policy, because a lot of these actions can be only voluntary. And so you need to convince people why this is important. And I think climate change is one thing where we know this will affect everyone. And um, I mean, it affects people differently. So there's, you know, if we talk generally about the global south, you know, their capacity to adapt to climate change is much, much lower than ours. We sort of, we have this moral obligation. We've been emitting greenhouse gases for so long. We have enough money. This is not sort of life or death choice if we decarbonize. You know, we're all going to be fine if we implement these these changes. So we, we really need to do this. And I think that um, if you give people, if you go into schools to the general public and tell them about it, you'll get more buy-in or at least... That's my hope and I have not yet given up hope. Well, thankfully, you haven't given up hope and you're bringing it out to the public as well. You've got your own podcast. So I'd love you to tell our audience about another Luxembourg podcast on Lux Unplugged, the Net Zero Future podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, this this started, I was actually a guest on the show because um, they it's been focused mainly on business. And I was talking about the COP26 uh, climate conference in Glasgow. And then afterwards, I asked the two hosts of the podcast, Adrian Lush and Thierry Schoen, whether do you think I could do a climate series? And they said yes. And so that's how Net Zero Future was born. And um, yeah, it's been great inviting experts on sustainability and climate change topics and just really picking their brain and trying to educate the public. What have you learned? What's the most exciting thing that you've learned, not just uh, through the podcast and the people that you've met, but when you spark off ideas, what excites you? 
I always, I like getting people's different perspectives. So we had, for example, a student from Youth for Climate Luxembourg, Selma Vincent on the show. And so it was really great to hear from her, you know, what's the youth movement like? Um, what was it like being at COP26? Um, I should mention that there is a climate change protest actually today, Friday. <laughs> um, I know this this is airing tomorrow, but there is a climate change protest in Luxembourg, actually all over the world. It's a global climate strike that, you know, Greta Thunberg started with Fridays for Future. So I basically on Net Zero Future, I had the chance to talk to a youth climate activist in Luxembourg. So it gives you an opportunity to talk to people from all different walks of life and get everyone's take on sustainability issues. Well, thank you so much, Claudia, for all of the work that you do, just like Pascal, encouraging the young people to to have the information given to them. And not only that, but also to inspire all of us older people as well into thinking about what we can do. And of course, you're always there on hand to inform and help policymakers to put in place what needs to be done to nudge us into the right direction. Thank you. If you want to know, find out more, you should go to carbonnerd with two n's dot list dot lu. So all the materials there are free for you to download. And I really hope you take a look. And I will absolutely put a link to that on the show notes and the article attached to this. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks, Lisa. And after the break, we're going to talk about fashion. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, now I've got Francine and Anushka to talk about the world of fashion design. And these are two ladies who didn't start out as fashion designers. Let me tell you about Francine Kaiser, first of all, originally from Luxembourg. You were a lawyer. She launched her couture brand in April this year after studying fashion in Paris. And amongst 500 designers, she was chosen as the winner for the school's 2021 annual parade. Francine is inspired by the 60s with her debut collection featuring glamorous evening dresses that combine classical fabrics and technical material, as well as more simple, chic outfits. And Anushka, originally from India and a commerce background, emigrated to Europe after she married. She studied shoe design in 2018 in the internationally recognised Institute Barangoni in Florence, Italy, and uh, is here to talk about all of the fabulous shoe collections that she's going to be presenting at Luxembourg Fashion Week. So ladies, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lisa. It's great to have you with me. And I'm going to start with you, actually, Francine. I want to talk to you about that move that you've made from the world of law to fashion. And how did that change come about? No, thanks, Lisa. That's a question that I am asked so, so many times, of course. Probably because a lot of people... striking. Well, it's striking, but also a lot of people don't have the courage to do it. Yes, I have to say, so I, I, I was working as a lawyer for over 30 years in one of the big law firms, international law firms. And as you may guess, uh, life uh, as a partner in a big law firm is quite special. It's very <laughs> exciting, very challenging, gets a lot of satisfaction, but it leaves very little space, private space for, for other activities. And I always had many, many other interests besides law and besides uh, helping people. That was really my work that I, I was admiring, adoring. But I said at some stage, I was wondering, how can I, I get my other interests also uh, activated? And I realized the only way to do that was to change in the middle of my life because it was absolutely not possible to have like a part-time as a lawyer. So I made myself a promise to me that I would in the middle of my life 
do something different. Can I ask, change. what does the middle of the life mean age-wise? I ask this because if we have any listeners who are shuffling around an idea, they might use you as a beacon of hope and example. What is the middle of life? Yes, would I know what the middle of my life is. <laughs> that would be very, very interesting. Unfortunately, I didn't. I have to say I had to postpone this deadline that I called the middle of my life uh, a few times because initially I had set it at the age of 40, but then it was postponed uh, twice actually, uh, because it was not that easy to to leave the legal world in in which I was. And I have to say that finally it was in 2019 I started my studies, uh, even before I completely left the the law firm, the, the, the job as a lawyer. And yes, so it, it's, uh, it has been, the middle of my life was a little bit late, probably a little bit optimistic because I was 56. <laughs> when you started? When I started well, you with look fashion. A lot do. younger than that. My goodness, you're giving us all hope. <laughs> if 56 is the middle of life, and yes, it is definitely the middle of life with all of these longevity things we have going on around us right now. But it gives great hope to so many people. And also because people need to afford to make that change and one can imagine in Luxembourg life as a lawyer allows you to make that change but not everybody can afford to take that time out to to re-educate themselves in a completely different field. Yes, it may seem uh, some people have that are, that reaction that as a lawyer it's very easy to quit and start something new. No, no, not I easy to quit at all. Not I can easy tell to quit you, at it all. isn't, it isn't. Because first of all, leaving your career is, even if you have planned it like me for a long, long time, it's a big step and it, it's very difficult. Uh, you have a lot that you leave behind. Your identity, uh, in fact. So many things, yes. So you start from scratch again. And I think, yes, that's a, a big step. It requires some courage. Uh, it requires that you are prepared to take some risks. Well, taking risks means also managing risks. I mean, you cannot just take risks uh, without limit. And yes, so, so, but I think it's a matter of character. You must have the character that you like new challenges, that you like to jump into the water. That's what I did. I have to say, when I stopped in the law firm, or like after I had taken the decision and I knew when the the date was when I would uh, completely change my life. So I was not all my life thinking that I would become a fashion designer. That actually came a bit by coincidence because there were so many other things I could have chosen after my life as a lawyer. But uh, so I had interests for, for philosophy, for literature, for architecture, even cooking. I was dreaming with my husband sometime to open a restaurant. I mean, so many other things that are available in life. Uh, I, I loved sports. I, I made uh, the ski instructor exam in Switzerland. So lots of ideas. And it was actually this one that materialized. And it was not planned from the beginning, but it came because I then registered at this Paris school because I was accepted for the show, the competition, and at the end that I won the competition. And that was really the milestone that made me decide, after a lot of thinking again, made me decide to go the route of uh, launching my, my own brand. Wow. Well, it seems like a lot of doors open, but it also seems like you're a hugely driven person, a very high achiever, and you probably would have been successful at anything you turned your hands to and your mind to. So talk us through your fashion, your styles, your inspiration, and why you love doing it. Right. So the, 
<laughs> There's a lot to say there. How it started was, of course, all with this fashion show at the school. And there I had to choose a theme. And the theme was actually uh, that I had to, to create a, a collection that would be accepted by one of the great fashion designers of our times. And what I chose, because I absolutely love it, was to, to do a collection that would be in the spirit of André Courage from the 60s. That was the collection I prepared for the fashion show at the school with which I, I won the fashion competition. And then, of course, afterwards, when I decided to launch my brand and to expand my collection, it was clear that it would be in that same style, which is actually my style, which is the style I always love to wear. And so it is a style based on the 60s. It has uh, an The collection has a number of, of evening dresses, which are quite special because they combine classical fabrics with really technical fabrics. So there are mirror pieces in it. So it's quite special. And still, it remains classical, elegant. I think everyone can wear it for, for an evening out. Uh, and it's classical enough to have a life forever. I want to mention that because we had discussions before on, uh, on, on fast fashion, on the unecological side of fashion, which definitely exists and, and, and we have to, to get rid of. But I think these are really clothes that will live forever. And I would hope even if one person has worn it for years and years, they can very well live on uh, in a secondhand shop and, and make someone else happy. And then uh, besides these glamorous evening dresses, there are more casual, smart casual dresses, which are ideal for active women who spent the whole day in the office. I know a lot about that. <laughs> What I was always missing was uh, fashion clothes that would be elegant when you have meetings all days, when you're in the office all day but which are comfortable at the same time. And I think that's really what I want to achieve with my casual, uh, smart casual series, clothes that are so comfortable and that women can wear throughout the day uh, in the office, in meetings and make them radiant all day. Well, Francine, congratulations on that switch of career and an extremely successful one at that. And of course, uh, we can look at your wonderful fashion at Luxembourg Fashion Week, which is coming up in a week's time. Also there, we're going to have Anushka's uh, shoe collection, which is called Mojaza. Is that the correct pronunciation? Mojaza. Mojaza. So what does Mojaza mean? So Mojaza is basically an Arabic word, which means miracle. And I've chosen this uh, word because my journey's been a little bit like that. It's also uh, not a straight line journey. You no, went from really. commerce, well, then got married, then came to Italy of all places and fell into shoe design. So, so talk us through those changes. So basically my past has been, I've done a bachelor's degree in commerce and was pursuing chartered accountancy back in my home country, India. And then I got married. I migrated here in Luxembourg. And um, since child, I mean, I remember being very passionate, passionate about shoes, uh, maybe because of my father, because he's very fond of shoes. So, you know, going shopping with him and buying shoes and all was very, uh, like, uh, uh, very encouraging and exciting thing for me. And also my mother, she comes from a little fashion background, like she's for a very brief period of time, she pursued fashion in her life. So I think a little bit of... Uh, 
you know understanding fabrics and textiles and embroideries and whatever you know the luxurious handlooms and indian embroideries are there available back in my country so i did get in touch a little bit with that and that's how i think the, a little bit of art and heritage and culture instilled in me when i migrated to uh, luxembourg uh, obviously i was looking for career options here uh, from the industry where i belong because i had three year industry industry training as well uh, back in my home country uh, but then italy being so close and you know giving a thought about why not like go for a career search and uh, pursue something that i've always enjoyed doing because uh, i remember uh, in my college days i used to buy like pair of shoes because there were few shoes which you really loved uh, out in the market but could not afford it so i used to actually buy plain canvas shoes and you know paint it or put embroideries and do things with that so that's how i think for shoes slowly slowly that really you know getting the creative side of it instilled in me and uh, so it, you really had that inspiration from both of your parents in different uh, yeah. ways yeah. and from childhood <laughs> designing your own shoes you had made me smile when you said italy being so close i mean it, it's close but it's not you know it's not <laughs> next door <laughs> true but like well i mean i mean coming in europe i mean uh, knowing that like you, italy is a Distances place where distances are yeah, different <laughs> exactly and also the fact that in italy produces like the best uh, shoes in the world so that was one of the reason why i thought like you know i should go for if i'm thinking of a career switch and going for this i should go because i had no idea about shoes the construction of shoes the technical part of it the all of that so i thought of going getting a proper formal education for one year um in florence that's what i did i did a little bit of internship there and did you do it in italian oh yeah so uh, <laughs> basically <laughs> so basically our college is international it has english so there were few professors who did uh, converse with us in english but there were few uh, who did completely in italian but we had an interpreter in the classroom who could you know uh, tell us the technical part of the shoes and you're yeah. very brave to, <laughs> to do all of this so, but you're right most of us don't know how a shoe is constructed we can yeah. look at one but we wouldn't necessarily yeah. think about where do the products come from and you're also telling me before we began about the the italian style the patina yeah 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 so basically the first collection because i wanted to launch a uh, launch mojiza uh, i went for the first collection i wouldn't say play safe but since i was launching in europe and there were so many questions which were unanswered and so many uncertainties that i thought that i'll go uh, with a collection that speaks about europe an art form that is european which is patina and it's completely hand painted so patina is basically uh, like you know in furnitures or uh, rustic the rustic look that you get in leather or furnitures when it's left the wooden furnitures when it's left for years and years so that's the effect that you know it's an art form that people literally you know painted by hand and get that effect on the shoe and it's very much done in like you know Italy you you'll get a lot of shoes like that and i really fell in love with that art form and that's what i thought that i'll you know start my first collection because i'm starting in europe i should uh, you know get the first collection european and with the concept of patina so and found a manufacturer ma- manufacturer fortunately in spain who did the same and met all my conditions and could manufacture my designs so yeah that happened and um, well your commerce background is coming into play here as well i mean well, it did help a lot it did help a lot <laughs> because when it comes to numbers and you know revenues expenses taxations and administrative work it 
it really helps so you i mean of course that really did help me a lot to understand the process the supply chain management all of that so yeah so that was there well your parents must be very proud of you so <laughs> where can people find your shoes so basically uh, the first collection uh, it's available at the store named ferala that's at city center and uh, and also uh, you can that's the store that the physical part of it the social media is also there and the social platform i have my uh, official website www.mojiza.eu where you can find my first collection so this was first collection but in luxembourg fashion week which is coming up next weekend yes uh, and uh, that's on saturday um i am presenting my second collection and uh, So basically I just want to mention that Mojiza has a vision of getting different art forms cultures across the globe on the shoe this is what I dream of and this is what I had dreamt of for Mojiza and uh, so my second collection that I want to present in Luxembourg Fashion Week is about my home country uh, the art form from there uh, so basically the new collection is the name of the new collection is Dear Dream because it's been a big dream for me to you know get the second collection launched as well and um, uh, so there's a very unique shoe style present in india called mojeries and it, it you won't find them in europe i looked and, them up actually because you wrote okay. me about this and yeah. i looked them up they're beautiful thank you yeah so i have basically tried to interpret it in, got inspiration from it interpreted in a way uh, to make it more practical more comfortable and uh, more luxurious in a way to put it and uh, that's how I, that's how that so that's the style that I'll be showcasing in Luxembourg fashion week and uh, um, since it's from by culture so i've used the indian handlooms and indian luxurious embroideries on the shoe uh, because i want people when they buy the shoe they you know get a little uh, understanding or the concept that the shoe has a concept and it is made of uh, like you know an inspiration which will reflect india yeah. so basically that's the whole story it's a st- it has a story also keep also there is an art form that i've attached to these shoes um the indian beautiful indian folk arts i've always had these you know wall ha- uh, arts hanging in my houses uh, which are very very fo- which are like folklore to india there are beautiful tales about these art forms and i've incorporated inspiration from that and uh, instilled in my shoes so yeah. i can literally see everything ticking you're you're all so intelligent here i'm getting just waves of energy of intellect who are flowing <laughs> to my way now when it comes to shoes yeah. and clothing comfort you've both mentioned comfort right. and sometimes women in particular don't always buy shoes that are comfortable how do you make shoes that will fit every person's foot so that is like the biggest challenge that we have in our shoe industry i guess that is an unsolved problem i guess but uh, uh, well uh, for me i've always liked very bulky and big shoes like my first collection was very much focused on men's shoes it was more of unisex shoes but i've always liked like sneakers and you know bulky shoes like those so my second collection in taking inspiration from mojeries but it's mostly like platforms so that you have heels for women who want heels but um, in a more you know comfortable when i say it's more like because i've used material the sole materials that we use the insole materials that we use are these are all the technical parts but like keeping in mind that you know it's very comfortable it's 
a little fluffy pushy so that people when they are walking or wearing for full day they don't find it uncomfortable plus they're getting heels or the glamour whatever they want a little bit of height yeah. and the same question to you finally francine how do you build in comfort into your designs oh, i think the comfort really comes from the quality of the fabrics uh, i just that's really very very important to me it's the most important thing and i think it's what is lacking a lot in the fashion industry nowadays so i really use uh, very very high quality fabrics like double crepe of 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 wool and silk uh, f- coming from italy and i think that just makes that it looks amazing it looks like uh, very structured and nevertheless these fabrics are so nice to wear so comfortable that I can swear I wear them from morning to the evening and you just forget that you are dressed up. Well, thank you both so much for being here with us. We're going to hopefully showcase your work at Luxembourg Fashion Week. There are still tickets available actually that uh, people can get on uh, on on the website which is luxembourgfashionweek.lu. Absolutely and I will absolutely link to that as well in the article. So congratulations on this shift of career. Thank you for Thank talking. Thank you so much Lisa. Us Thank you very it. much. It's it's wonderful to have you here and of course you can learn all about uh, Claudia's work for the environment for carbon nerd and listen to her podcast Net Zero Future on Luxemplugged and if you have no plans for this weekend don't forget to go along to the Philharmonie where you can see all of Pascal's work as head of education there at the Philharmonie and all of the young people can get involved and adults too it's always good for us to have a little bash on an instrument to make wonderful music thank you all for listening the lisa burke show Thank you to all my guests, to you, my listeners. Please do write to tell me what shows you like, what you'd like to hear more of. The more I learn from you and what information you'd like to hear, the more I can tailor make this show just for you. I wish you all a wonderful weekend. And if you're in Luxembourg, the orchards are now open in Steinsel. 